Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, if you'll join me by turning in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9, we are now in part 8 of our exhilarating study of the book of Leviticus. Somebody say amen. All right. I want to welcome all of those gathered in this space, this holy space, as well as those worshipped in another holy space right down the hall, the rest of our church family, worshipping in the Family Life Center, and all of those worshipping in the holy space of wherever you are alongside the Christ who is in you. Welcome into this conversation. Today we open up to the ninth chapter, verse 1. And here is how the word begins. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. They then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, uh, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord. Together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. This is the reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. I want to tell you this morning about Thomas Edison, who, the great inventor, you know, who in 1914 had manufacturing facilities all over the East Coast, one of which was in West Orange, New Jersey. And on a cold December night in 1914, that manufacturing facility burned to the ground, and he lost everything. He lost over a million dollars worth of materials and equipment, along with uh, all the records of much of his work, both inventions that were successful and ones that had failed. And the next morning, walking through the, the charred embers Of all that remained, he was overheard to say these words. There is value in disaster. Because now all our failures are burned up. And we get to start anew. I just want us to think about those words for a moment on the way to the word. Because I am absolutely convinced that there may be those gathered here on this campus or somehow paying attention to this conversation online. I'm absolutely convinced there may be some 
who are so haunted by failures in the past, by mistakes, by fears, by moments that you wish would just be consumed along with all of those embarrassing moments so that you could start anew. If that's you at all today, if there's any part of you that resonates with the the hope that you could start anew, you picked a great day to study Leviticus. Because these words opened up to us a moment ago with the strangest four words. Did you hear them when I read them earlier? Here they read again in the first verse. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. On the eighth day, I just want us to think a moment about the eighth day because there's nothing significant really about the eighth day on like a, um, like a monthly calendar because there's like three of them, three eighth days on a monthly calendar. And, and on an annual calendar, there's a whole bunch more eighth days. But on a seven-day weekly calendar, the kind of calendar that the Bible mostly pays attention to, the eighth day is unique. Because the eighth day really is the first day of a new week. And that's, that's so true every time we gather for worship because when we gather in worship, I know there are some of us who gather here exhausted because you had a week and it was a week and you need more than just an eighth day theologically we come to this text recognizing that the eighth day is really the first day of a brand new existence today I want to talk to you about that I want to talk to you about the eighth day I want to talk to you about Mr. Spock's Vulcan salute And then I want to talk to you about the three best words ever spoken. The eighth day, Mr. Spock's Vulcan salute, and I know you're already practicing it down where I can't see you. And the three best words ever spoken. Let's let's take a moment and pray together. God, in this moment, as we have opened up your word and as we have maybe even begun to recognize that we all in some way are looking for a new week, an eighth day, an opportunity to start all over again. We pray that you would enable us, even now as your worshipers are tuned in to you. We confess that all through the week, Our mind's attention and our heart's affection may be scattered in a thousand different directions, but not right now. Right now, your worshipers are fixed on you. And in the sacred space and time of these shared moments, we pray that your spirit, which is in us and among us, we pray that that spirit would transform us, that we may leave stronger wiser, more loving, forgiving, compassionate, merciful, even now, in the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. 
I want to talk for just a moment about the eighth day. But if I'm going to say anything about the eighth day, and if we're understanding the significance of, of the eighth day when we come to it in Scripture, we have to know something about the background. Let's talk a little bit about the other seven days, right? So, so far in this journey that we've been making from Genesis through Exodus and now all the way through Leviticus, we've been paying attention to a thread, a theme, Don't forget, these are ex-slaves. I mean, they were enslaved beyond their capacity. They were enslaved in Egypt barely 11 months ago. And God rescued them, set them free, guided them through the waters all the way through the wilderness to Sinai. And there they are at Sinai, and God says, you are enslaved no more. I want to make of you a people for me. And I want you to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And I'm going to show you how it's done. I'm going to give you ordinances. I'm going to give you instructions on how you are to order your life in such a way that you exist in this world in the way that I hoped you might. And then he begins to give Moses very detailed instructions about the creation of what we've been calling the tabernacle. God said, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to do this by dwelling in and among you so that I will travel through this life with you, but I need a space. So for about 10 chapters, God gives these explicit details to Moses about how to create this this worship space for him to abide alongside the people. And what we already noticed when we were in Leviticus or Exodus studying this is that when God gives these instructions to Moses, he does it in a creative way. He does what I, what I said back in Exodus was he, he hides these like Old Testament Easter eggs, clues in the text. Because when he gives Moses these instructions, they come in the form of seven speeches by God at the end of Exodus, right? Seven speeches, and the seventh one ends with a speech about Sabbath. And I've been trying to provoke us to remember where else have we seen that pattern before? Where was the first place? The law of first mention, we, we call it in scriptural studies, right? The law of first, where'd you first hear of doing something for six days and then resting on the seventh? It's a throwback, a callback to creation and the poems of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 where God in seven acts of creation creates all that exists and on that seventh day creates a day of rest. So in Exodus, when God is giving Moses instructions for creating a space so that God can abide with them as they're going through life, he does so with some clues. And why? Because the creation of a worship space is so that those who come into that worship space are provoked in mind and heart and in worshipful imagination to think about the world, not as it exists currently, but as it was intended to exist from the dawn of creation. Worship then and worship now has always been about attempting to provoke the worshipers to imagine creating the world all over again. So you get to the end of Exodus, right? And you turn the page. And now you have this building, this this tent of meeting. And it's all arranged with meticulous detail. Put this thing there. Lay that thing over there. Make these curtains with that material. And weave these with another kind. Put the bronze stuff here and the gold stuff here. 
and you turn the page of, of Exodus to the first page of Leviticus, and now that the space is ready for God to abide, the very first words that we hear out of the book of Leviticus, and I know that you're, it's your favorite word by now, so on the count of three, I want you to say it like you mean it. We hear the word, Vaikra, you are so believable. Oh, listen, Vaikra, it's a word that you got to be careful how you pronounce. But it's a word that at the beginning of Leviticus, God issues throughout all the cosmos this, this heralding trumpet that blasts for not just Moses and not just Israel, but for all humankind, Vaikra, come near me. All you who were scattered, enslaved, unseen, unheard, Vaikra, come near. And in Leviticus, oh my gosh, it gets even better. Isn't scripture beautiful? It gets even better now. Not only are there meticulous details about the space in which to worship, now you turn the page and Vaikra, God says, now I'm going to tell you what to do in that space. And I'm going to show you how to, Vaikra, come near me. And he gives instructions. And the first seven chapters of the book are all about these practices that the people can put into, into rhythm and ritual to help them draw near. And in Leviticus, we find the same Easter eggs as Exodus. Sevens crammed everywhere. In, in Leviticus, we have seven speeches by God about sacrifices. Seven acts of ordination, which we studied last week. A seven-day waiting period after ordination for the priest to stand there in between the ordinary and the sacred. A seven-day period to deal with impurities. A, a seven-day uh, period to deal with impurities. A seven-day plus one purification ritual for diseases. Uh, a sevenfold ritual to cleanse the sanctuary. Uh, seven festivals, seven holy days, seven month observances, a seven year calendar cycle called the Jubilee. There's sevens crammed everywhere. And why? Why? Because the writer is attempting to get all people of faith who ever have the courage to open up this book to remember that when you step into the space of worship, these sevens are to remind us that every time you step into worship, both then and now, it is a call back to the creation poems and everything we do in worship, everything we say in worship, everything that we sing or think or preach or, or hope, everything that we doubt, it's all meant to somehow provoke in us an awareness that in worship, we are up to nothing less than co-creating the world with God. That's what happens every time we gather here. Now, it doesn't happen if you just show up to see what happens. That's not, how uncompelling is that kind of worship? I mean, I pray to God that when you come to worship, I'm talking to you, my beloved, my, my sisters and brothers, I hope that when you come to worship, it's not just to hear what I say. I mean, God help us all if that's all you came for. Because sometimes it rises and sometimes, don't anybody amen what I just said. I hope even you don't come just to listen to the glorious music that we have on this campus. The orchestra, the choir, the band. But, will you go somewhere with me for a minute? If you do come and you walk into this space 
And you find a way to step into the sacred space and pray the prayer of the psalmist. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Or if you pray another prayer from the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me. And if there is, then lead me to the way everlasting. If we do that, if we... If we actually come into the space of worship and lay ourselves vulnerably, humbly um, before that kind of God who has said to us from the dawn of time, by Yikra, come, then here's what happens. The world is created all over again. Every act, every prayer, every song here has the capacity to create the world again. Why? Because the world gets created not by big movements, but by humble hearts being broken and transformed by the one who gives the heart rhythm. Right? So, so when you turn open the page to... Leviticus chapter 9, and the first four words are on the eighth day. Understand, that's not by accident. The eighth day is to provoke in us an awareness that the eighth day is a different day. It's the first day, potentially, of a brand new week and a brand new existence in this life. Can I just cram one more nugget into this part of the sermon for you, just to take home, put it away? It's not just even the Old Testament that has gospel in it. Can you believe it? The New Testament has some good news too. Because the gospel of John. Guess how many miracles or signs and wonders, John calls it, are depicted in John's gospel. Most look at it at first and say there are seven. And that's true. There are seven. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it's water to wine, healing the official son, healing the healing that happens at the pool of Bethesda. It's the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the healing of the man born blind, and then finally the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's seven, which is a call back to creation. But I, you realize it's not just seven in the book of John. There's one more. There's an eighth. The resurrection of Christ himself is the eighth miracle. In other words, the resurrection is a brand new morning. It's a brand new getting up morning. It's the eighth day, which is the, really the first day of a brand new creation. And every time you get up to come to church on the eighth day, you're up to way more than you could possibly think you're up to. So you might have struggled this morning getting the kids ready. I know that we've never struggled that way in our home. But maybe you struggled this morning and you got the kids ready, you tied the shoes. You know, I heard them. I couldn't see them as I was getting out of the tub. I heard them, some of them singing in here. Maybe you struggled getting the shoes tied and teeth brushed. Go back and brush them. I brushed them. This time use toothpaste, you know. And maybe you argued with them getting in the car. Get in the car. You've been in the car. We're going to church. We're going to church. Get in the car. But I'm tired. I stayed up too late. Get your butt in the car. We're going to church. I'm here to tell you, my beloved sisters and brothers, when you struggle to bring your family to church, I just want to let you know nobody simply brought your family to church today. 
What you did when you walked onto this campus was, it was a defiant, subversive act. Because you stepped into a space that potentially can recreate you, and by recreating you, recreate all the world. That's the importance of getting to church. Yeah, somebody say it. Amen. So, the eighth day, which if all that is true, if all of what I have just said is true, then there's logically the very next thing that we must have to talk about is Mr. Spock's Vulcan salute. I mean, logically. I mean, like you do, right? Now, how many of you were Trekkies growing up? Anybody? Okay. Some of you, maybe. If you're really a Trekkie, you would have raised your hand like this, right? All right, you know the, the Vulcan salute. So, so Mr. Spock was asked, Leonard Nimoy was asked one day, and I can kind of do it, but I don't do it well on my right hand, so I kind of have to, you know, there. So now I can do it. Leonard Nimoy was, Nimoy was asked one day by the producer of the show. They're putting the show together and said, hey, we're going to need to figure out some kind of a salute for you. Some kind of, so that when you see other Vulcans, you can do a salute or a hand signal or something. And he said, let's do this. And I said, well, that's fine. That sounds good. But where'd you get that? What's, what's that from? When Leonard Nimoy was eight years old, he's sitting in church, synagogue, worship. And the rabbis have finished their work, and these priests come to the edge of the platform, the Kohanim, like they have been doing for thousands of years, and hold up their hand like this and issue a final blessing in worship. The shape of the Vulcan salute is really not a Vulcan salute. It's the shape of the Hebrew letter Shin, the Hebrew letter Shin is the first letter of the Hebrew word Shaddai, as in El Shaddai. So when the priests come to the edge of the platform, eight-year-old Leonard Nimoy sees them raise up the symbol of the Lord their God while a benediction is spoken over them. So we come to verse 22 in chapter 9 and we hear these words. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, burnt offering, fellowship offering, he stepped down. And in Leviticus, we don't have the words that were spoken, but we know what they are. For thousands of years, the same practice among the Kohanim. But we know that in number six, we do get an indication of what was said as he holds up the priest, his hands in a sign. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And I just want us for a moment, if we can, to imagine what that might have sounded like to a group of ex-slaves <laughs> The Lord bless you and keep you. Those of you whose lives are in such disorder that you've never been blessed and never been kept by anyone other than Pharaoh, now the Lord, Vayikra, will bless and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. One of the, the ideas was that in the spaces of the shin, the spaces of the, the hand of blessing, the radiant Shekinah glory of God was said to have shined through the cracks to overwhelm the Israelites with blessing. May he make his face to shine upon you. Those of you who up till now have been unseen, you're unseen in Egypt. I wonder if anybody even here knows what it looks like and feels like to live an unseen life. Husband never talks to me anymore. Wife never affirms me or touches me anymore, looks at me even. The kids don't even know. They, they don't even see what I do all day to make sure there's a space for them to come home and eat and sleep and be safe. My, my boss doesn't even see how many extra hours I put in and everybody else gets the credit and I get nothing. Do you know what it looks like to live an unseen life? Then if you do, you know what it must have felt like to have the Shekinah radiance of God pour over you and hear these words, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Could anything be more beautiful? Could any news be better news? Then there is a God who pays attention to you and wants to cover you with blessing. Well, that leads us to not only think about the eighth day and how every Sunday is our eighth day. It's the first day of the potential new creation that is formed in us. Because don't forget what Paul said about it. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is past. The old week is gone. And behold, the new has come. Not only are we talking about the eighth day, and not only are we to consider the reality that there is a God who wants to pour blessing all over you and recreate you from the inside out, but this leads us to the last movement of the sermon, the three best words ever spoken. So what we've not said thus far is that chapter 9 is the first day of worship in their new sanctuary. I mean, last week we talked about the priests being set up, right? The tabernacle is set. The priests are now ordained. But this is rookie day. This is opening day. The priests have never done this before. It's their first day on the job. And all through the rest of chapter 9, we see them practice each of the five offerings that you and I have studied in glorious detail for the last six weeks. And we come to verse 23, and this is what we hear. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, right, radiated. It appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. What would make them fall face down besides the divine kind of pyrotechnic show that was going on? Think about what has just happened. For the first time, the priest put all five of the offerings in play. And don't forget what each of them is. The burnt offering, which means if you can afford a bull, bring a bull. 
If you can only afford a goat, bring a goat. If you can only afford a pigeon, bring a pigeon. And why? Because this kind of God is a God who welcomes everybody. So they bring the burnt offering, but that's not the only offering they brought. They brought the fellowship, or they brought the grain offering. So bring a grain offering of the finest flour mixed with olive oil and frankincense, all ingredients that required being crushed, smashed, squeezed, broken. Why? As a symbol that on the altar now is a symbol that all that is broken in me, I offer before you. And this God is a God who welcomes not our perfection. How uncompelling is that? But he welcomes our brokenness. And there it is, the burnt offering and the grain offering, along with the fellowship offering. Bring some bread, and God will eat some, and we will eat some, and we share this piecemeal together. Are you kidding me? And then the sin offering and the guilt offering, and it's all there on the altar, and in one moment, this blaze of glory comes out and swallows up all that's on the altar, and they see it, and more than just this divine barbecue, what they see is that this God, despite all appearances to the contrary, despite my deepest fear and shame, despite all of my past, this God accepts what I bring him. This God welcomes everything that I bring him. So he means what he says when he says, come near. So at the end of the day, it's all been done. And I want you to know that at the end of every day, the priests would offer all five offerings every day from sunup to sundown, all five. Burnt, grain, fellowship, sin, guilt. And after all five would be offered in order every day, they did one final thing at the end of the day. They would raise their hands and remind the world of the grace that's been given. The Lord bless and keep you. But then they would say one thing more. It is finished it's finished the priest would proclaim what's finished my enslavement is finished my wandering is finished my unseen life is now finished the lord bless you and keep you. it is finished and it meant all the world to a band of ex-slaves because now they fall on their faces in abject humility and worship because they actually are known by a God who wants to be known. And if it meant something to them then, oh my Lord, it means more to us now because those three words are the best three words I have ever heard. One, two, three words because these are the final words spoken on the lips of the crucified one who when hanging on the cross spread his arms wide to receive all Ikra, all are welcome. And with his hands splayed open by Roman spikes, it really is finished. The separation that you have felt between you and God is finished. The sin that has kept you at a distance, it is finished. The illusion that you cannot know or be known by a God who can put things back together, that lie is finished. Thanks 
be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Most glorious God, you drive us to our knees in humility when we recognize how far you have come to gather us in, that you have created a space holy enough for you and yet inclusive enough to welcome us. And we pray that in this moment, if if there is any among us who for the first time is hearing that news, you would do what only you can do and transform the heart in such a way that everything changes, everything old passes away, everything new comes. Make of us this day and in this moment not just inspired people, but make of us your new creation. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.